Welcome to Fucking Cancelled, a podcast about what the left is like, what to do about it, and what it'll be like once we've done it. In today's episode, we are joined by Sam Cat, aka Shrimp Teeth, a sexuality, relationship, and polyamory educator out of the United States. We discuss the intersections of polyamory and cancel culture. Welcome back to fucking cancel. Welcome back to fucking cancel. We're here today with Sam Cat of Shrimp Teeth. Yeah, welcome Sam. Thanks for being here. Thank you. Thank you. It's nice to finally get to talk to both of you. <laughs> so like, I don't know, for any of you guys who are longtime listeners of the podcast, you might, you might remember way back in episode four, we actually talked about an article that Sam had written and posted online called Canceling Canceling. And this uh, article actually kind of took the form of a letter to me. So it was kind of crazy. Um reading it back then because what we were doing at the time was like super controversial and new there weren't a lot of people on the left speaking out about cancel culture we were being quite brave and i was very canceled it was right after my major cancellation and sam wrote this article like coming out against cancel culture and also like literally like apologizing to me and being like yeah like you know just talking about the way that i was being treated in the sort of like sex positive instagram world um and that was really cool it so was extremely sweet it was like one of the first um like positive reactions to our work that we had gotten to like and the fact that you did it so publicly um was also like really refreshing and felt really nice for us totally i was like wow people can actually like say these things so <laughs> thank you for that and it's really cool to finally have you on the podcast so do you want to just tell our listeners a little bit about who you are what you do what your background is just to give people some context yeah absolutely um so i I'm kind of like a sex educator, polyam peer mentor is kind of the way that I describe it. And I mostly just like fell into this work without necessarily seeking to do this. Um, I have like a whole weird background in consumer psychology. That's what I studied and was like, oh, it's a fascinating field, but I hate the like corporate applications of all of this. I need to get out. Anyways, on that journey of doing freelance work, I kind of fell into this and ended up working at a sex toy company. And we're like having all of these instances where we're trying to work with people and whatever was happening, right? There was like rumors online about how they had done, again, like vague accusations mm -hmm. kind of in the flavor that's been thrown at both of you, right? Mm -hmm. And my team, I remember specifically being like on vacation in the woods, no cell phone, coming back and being like, there's all of these text messages from, yeah, this team of people that I've hired to work with me, just like diving into the drama of like, should we continue to go ahead with this contract with this person? Like they're, they just had this cancellation campaign go against them. And then it was like the back and forth of what is our responsibility as a company? Like, are we able to quote unquote platform this person? Right. Now they're right. canceled. And it was just like this nonstop drama. Right. And it kept coming up over and over and over again. And the first time 
I mean, I was in these positions of just being like, all right, you know what, like for the company's image, it's better to just say, sorry, we're not going to work with you. And then I realized I kept falling into this pattern of just being like, fine, I guess we'll just like blacklist these people. And we Mm -hmm. ended up with like a document on our Google sheet that was like people were not quote unquote allowed to work with. Mm -hmm. And that's when I had to start doing that self-reflection of like, what the fuck is happening right like these people and i'll say like erica lust was one of them right Mm -hmm. really big in the porn world and feminist porn and i think you know she's somebody who i would dare say is like really pushing boundaries in terms of what this landscape should look like but then there's been allegations about like misbehavior on her sets and again I don't know right like that's the problem is that this world moves so quickly we're having to work with so many people on a constant basis that I never had the time to actually check in Mm -hmm. on what was being said and to legitimize this and I got to a point where I realized like there is no way to legitimize these because these allegations are so vague because they just kind of are coming from kind of anonymous sources for the most part Mm -hmm. it's really difficult for me as a person to be able to sit here and not only just judge people and be like you're a bad person therefore we can't work with you but also as a company is that actually the I don't know how to say this, like the face that we want to have of like people uh-huh. don't live up to our quote unquote moral standard and therefore you're not allowed to. So when I got to a point where I was like, okay, this isn't a way for us to work and I'm having a really hard time. And you had been one of the prime examples, right? Like uh-huh. I recommended your zine, um, Love Without Emergency. Yeah all the time and people would be like how can you promote this person they're you know an abuser blah 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 and again same as the other people never checked who was I supposed to ask (laughs) right like Uh I literally did not know you didn't know a single thing about you and was like okay I guess this is a bad person we don't talk about it anymore and yeah it took that kind of moment to just be like so everyone whose work is like contributing something to our industry has now been blacklisted and where do we go from here Mm -hmm, (laughs) um so that was kind of the background for that it's fascinating to think about how this shit plays out um behind the curtain so to speak on the business end of things you know yeah because as you're pointing out it's like you know a, a small business or like you know maybe a big business like that has like any kind of like that has a toe in the water in like social justice world you know um doesn't have the resources or the the um you know the will to like go in depth into each of these accusations and sort of like what are they going to do like interview witnesses or something like yeah, how could not, they? You know? yeah. how could they? so like it makes way more sense to just be like okay anytime anybody's experiencing a cancellation you just blacklist them right um yeah. that's like the simplest way to go about it and uh yeah it's really interesting to hear you just relate how that actually functioned like um in a very you know day-to-day kind of way totally yeah. And so, like, for today's episode, the topic that we are interested in talking about, which is, it's cool, like, Sam reached out to us wanting to talk about this, and it's something that Jay and I have also been wanting to talk about on the podcast, so it's, like, a perfect opportunity, 
is the intersection of cancel culture and polyamory. So like for a little background for me, for those who don't know, who only know me as controversial Clementine of the cancel culture fame, um, I originally was mostly known for my work on trauma-informed polyamory before I was canceled. My zine, Love Without Emergency, was like extremely, extremely popular, still is. Um, And before I was canceled, you know, that's what I was mostly known for. So I'm also like a polyamory educator. Um, Jay and I are both polyamorous. Um, and so we have seen all of this stuff going on and we've been thinking a lot about the intersections of the ways that cancel culture plays out specifically in um, a polyamorous context. And there's just like a little story that we wanted to tell, which is that basically when we were on tour this year, like in April, we did like an American tour. We were traveling um, to like Arizona and we were traveling through the South and we got contacted by like a conference who they were polyamorous conference and they were like, hey, like we would love to have you speak at this um, conference that we're doing on polyamory. And at first I was like, oh, you want me to talk about trauma informed polyamory? And they were like, no, we actually want you to talk about polyamory and cancel culture. And we, I was like, wow, very bold of you, a polyamorous conference to be brave enough to broach this subject. And it just so happened that Jay and I were traveling through at that time. So we were like, yeah, we'll do it if if you want. But I was like warning them because polyamorous communities are super cancely. So I was like, please be prepared. Please be aware. You're going to get shit if you have us at the conference like 100%. And you need to be prepared for that. You need to have our backs if we're going to do this. And they were like, yep, like we're big fans of the podcast. We will totally do it. And then, of course, as soon as they announced us drama rama obviously ensued. It, it was extreme drama rama and they got into so much shit and then basically like you know the counselors were super mad and then they they came to like the conclusion that like what they wanted to do was instead of having us speak which they had originally invited us to do on cancel culture they wanted to have basically like a panel where we would still be allowed to speak but the counselors who are literally like slandering us and talking shit would also be allowed to speak. Like when they, they wanted to do like a debate club about like whether or not yeah. cancel culture exists. You and know? like also whether or not me and Jay are like literally the incarnation of evil, you know, yeah. like, um, so I was just like, well, we're clearly not doing mm. that. This is not what we agreed to. Um, and so we like just pulled out of the conference. Um, but I thought that that was like a very interesting example because I, I feel for the organizers. I really do. Even though, you yeah. know, it was, it didn't end up super well for us. I mean, it was fine, but it was just annoying that it turned into another opportunity for people to slander us. But like, I also have compassion because I think that they really genuinely wanted to bring this conversation because it's an important conversation that needs to happen. But of course, it's a risky one. I don't think they understood the magnitude of like how how insane it can get, you know? Yeah. So Sam, you do this work on polyamory, um, peer support and education around polyamory. So do you want to just talk to us about what has been coming up for you in terms of the connection between cancel culture and polyamory specifically? Yeah, absolutely. And I was just like laughing, shaking my head at this story because it sounds exactly like the stories that I hear during peer Uh support. It's just like you said, for community, and we can talk about how this intersects a little bit in a second, but you know, for a community that promotes like free expression and kind of often, I would say, positions itself as like a morally superior (laughs) set of relationship structures. It is so judgmental and so close-minded in a lot of other ways. And I think that kind of dichotomy is really interesting in the way that it plays out in situations Mm -hmm. like you're describing. Um, But to answer your question, 
the peer support thing. So I've been doing it since like 2018, which is when I was like first starting to go from like cheating, don't ask, don't tell, right? With my partner, like we knew that we were seeing other people, but we were long distance, didn't really talk about it into like living together, sharing space and having to like actually formalize agreements and what that looked like in a more, I I think what you would consider like polyamorous relationship. Um, and at the time I was just like writing, posting about it and people were starting to be like, oh, can we like talk, like I need someone to talk to who's going through this. And I was like, perfect. I used to facilitate focus groups. Let's go, let's have these conversations. Right. And I would mostly just ask folks questions and sort of like have conversations. It's Mm -hmm. become a lot more formalized because now I have, you know, many years of experience doing this. But to your point, like the types of issues that I've seen have changed over the years, I would say, Mm. right? Like, I mean, I still get like newbies who are, you know, just have no clue what they're doing, trying to open up their relationship. Those conversations are relatively straightforward for the most part, um, in the sense that I can just point them to resources. But then there's the issues, like I had two of them this week specifically, Um, And like I mentioned, we'll just keep all of these people's details anonymous, but someone who's dating someone who's a big figurehead in their local polyam community and this person, you know, they took a break and now this person's unhappy about it and has been sort of like blacklisting this Uh person I was talking to from the entire community. And they're just like, what do I do? do like there's now just all of these folks that some of them I know most of them I don't who just like don't like me for these very vague reasons which is Mm -hmm. you know like the reality of it is that they just didn't want to date anymore and I know like y'all have dealt with this personally too Mm -hmm. and I have a lot of friends who are kind of going through that same thing and it does seem to be like kind of a rampant issue at this moment where like interpersonal conflicts breakups are being framed as like community issues that need to be remedied in a very public space and I don't think that the majority of people are ready to handle like their emotions on such a public platform um so yeah I don't know what your thoughts are about that but that's kind of what I totally yeah Um, I definitely agree. And I think that this issue is, it's something that's happening not just inside polyamory world, it's also happening amongst like monogamous world too, which is the idea that basically hurt feelings, uh, conflict, mismatch needs, you know, unhappy relationships, these types of things, which are, you know, they suck and they're also Mm -hmm. super common, they're super human, these types of, um, you know, stressful relationship situations mm-hmm. are now being recast as abuse very frequently through cancel culture. And so, you know, this, I wrote an article um, where I owned up to my own participation in this type of thing in the past, mm-hmm. where I literally called my ex-partner abusive when they weren't actually abusive. 
But I genuinely didn't feel like I was lying and slandering them Mm -hmm. because basically I was in an unhappy relationship where I was anxious, preoccupied, and my partner was avoidant, right? And we were in a constant cycle of that. And we didn't have tools. We didn't have language. We didn't know what was going on. And I had, you know, like PTSD from previous trauma. So I was super dysregulated by that. And then when I left that relationship, seeing my partner around was my ex was so fucking dysregulating Mm. for me. And I would go into like a lot of distress. And so when I described this to my friends, they were like, maybe you were emotionally abused. And this is the Mm. kind of framing that is so common in cancel culture. And when I thought of myself as emotionally abused, I felt super fucking regulated by that because now I was angry instead of just grieving and hurt and confused. And so I actually started to say that. And it wasn't until I had a therapist directly challenge me on it and be like, actually, what you're describing is an unhappy relationship, not an abusive one. And it's important for you to understand the difference. And these are things that we can actually like describe and name and understand accurately. Um, You know, and my therapist, she could be totally canceled for doing that because you're not allowed to challenge people on those types of things. But anyway, that's just like a personal story to say that like, this is something that I think is really, really common for monogamous people and polyamorous people where now conflicts are being recast as abuse. But in polyamorous contexts, there's a few differences that I think make it way more like intense. Yeah. I mean, one of which is just that in polyamory world, people have a ton of exes. (laughs) So it's just like more likely to happen, you know? Yeah. Um, And another is, is that polyamory is very challenging. Or it can Mm -hmm. be very challenging, you know, it often pushes on people's buttons in like really, really, you know, kind of uncomfortable ways um, and can create a lot of distress in people, right? Um, Mm -hmm. And yeah, like we were just mentioning, right, there's this kind of social location that's like an intersection of like progressive world, queer world, polyamory world. And then sort of like, if you think of that location, and then like people who are there and adjacent to there. Um, there's this kind of like pop relationship psychology that exists in that world um, that really, really tries to convince people that if they feel distress in a relationship, it is most likely because they're being abused, right? And um, it doesn't require any sort of like understanding of what abuse really is. Um, And it's just sort of like your feelings are the evidence that you need to determine if you're being abused or not, not any sort of like more objective factors that, you know, you could actually like list or like check off, you know? Um, And yeah, I think it's led to some very, very disturbing outcomes uh, for a lot of people. Do you, do you see that kind of pattern in your work? Yeah. And one of the really big things I talk with clients about and online is like the difference between the theory of non-monogamy versus the actual practice of Mm. it, right? I think so many people go into non-monogamy being like, I just want more love, right? Like I want the feeling of compersion. I want to have like more open relationships. I want a deeper community. You know, they have like these really big lofty goals that non-monogamy often promises, I would say. Mm -hmm. And then they get into the real experience of it, right? Like they deal with their partners fucking someone for the first time. And obviously like, well, I say obviously, I guess if you haven't been in that situation, not everyone knows, but 
people's jealousy, you know, shoots through the roof. Those are brand new experiences. They don't have the tools to say like, hey, yes, this was within our agreements. And I feel super emotionally dysregulated by this brand new experience. And I think that gap between what they assumed it would be like versus the reality of practicing, especially in the beginning, right, is Uh so large that people can't really hold both of those things at once of like, it will take years of work and personal growth and interpersonal like communication development in order to get to a place where you can even start to feel that compersion, that, you know, feeling of abundance and whatever else. And so I think for a lot of people who are just stuck in the really triggering, super like activated state in the beginning, they're like, something is wrong, right? Like I'm being Uh coerced. I am being abused. Something bad is happening. My meta is doing all this shit. You know, they're the abusive person. They're the reason for my pain. They're the reason for my suffering. And, you know, like I'm that person also I have to state this, right? That's why I'm against like cancel cultures because I get super dysregulated. Mm. And it's like in those moments, you know, I'm ready to like burn my metas at the stake. You know, like (laughs) I feel bad and I want revenge. I'm very vengeful. It takes me a really long time to get back to a place where I feel okay. And it's like that self-awareness, that understanding is like, oh, I cannot be the person who dictates what happens to them, right? Like in those moments where I'm activated, if I just like start tweeting or if I start just like laying out all of my problems, all of my emotions, that has really severe consequences Mm -hmm. for the person who I'm directing my anger at, right? Like the only thing I can do is put a whole lot of time and space between the feeling and my reaction. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't think that most people have that discipline yet or don't see the importance of developing that discipline early on. So they're like, I feel activated, boom, like let's just lay it all out there. And to your point, Clementine, right? It does feel a little bit more regulating to be the, in that victim position, yes. I guess, in those instances. Totally. Just for listeners, because we aren't a polyamory podcast, for listeners who are like, what's a meta? Meta stands yeah. for metamor, um, and that's your partner's other partner. Um, so that's just like common language that polyamorous people often use. But yeah, I totally agree with what you're saying. And to me, I'm like, this topic is so like, it's like my two wheelhouses like coming together in such a profound way because as a polyamory educator, like kind of what was new about the work that I did with Love Without Emergency is that I was kind of like one of the first people, at least that that it got shared widely, who was admitting that a lot of polyamorous people feel fucking crazy and are really, really dysregulated. And like when I first started doing that work, like back in 2014, my first attempts at polyamory, like after I got sober, were just like completely insane. Like I could not handle how bad I felt, even though intellectually I was like, I want this. I'm, I really, that's what I desire. When me and my ex first started trying to be polyamorous, like I had like several mental breakdowns and was like completely out of control, chaotically triggered. And so I started writing about that and was like, I'm actually losing my mind. And it was a very like vulnerable thing for me to write, to be like, you know, I I wrote an article called like, can crazy people be poly? Like Mm -hmm. this was the kind of stuff that I was writing. And then shockingly, 
this became like my most popular writing. Like the articles that I wrote went viral. People were really responding to it. So I ended up doing all of this work over the course of years, doing this writing, and then eventually teaching like my trauma-informed polyamory workshop. And I would like travel around teaching this workshop in different cities. And so therefore talking to tons and tons of people about this topic. And I'm sure you have a similar experience doing this work one-on-one with people where like when people feel safe and comfortable to admit it and they're in an environment that isn't judging and shaming, people will admit that they're actually feeling crazy. And that in fact, there's a lot of people who are newer to polyamory and it's not everyone because it's literally like certain attachment styles that have a harder time with it, you know, and people Mm -hmm. who are more secure may not have any jealousy or distress and it could be really easy for them. But if they have some kind of anxious, preoccupied attachment, disorganized attachment, some kind of prior trauma, anything like that, that's going to really make this a challenging experience, then those people tend to be really fucking dysregulated by it and act and feel quite crazy. And I say that with love, but yes, quite crazy. And so I also think that there's this like discrepancy, at least it's starting to change, but at least then, and I think still now to a certain degree, where we have this public image of polyamory, where like you were saying, there's that moral superiority where people are like, we are so evolved and like, we just like (laughs) totally feel compersion. And for those who don't know, compersion means like a feeling of joy at your partner's joy with someone else. Um, So you feel when you feel happy when you see your partner with someone else who they love or who they are dating. And so there's this image of polyamory that is like all very functioning, very smooth, very like full of compersion, very full of like abundant love. And then so if you believe that's what polyamory is and then in your relationship, you feel horrible, you're crying, you feel bad, you're fighting, there's conflict, then it's very easy to be like, okay, maybe this is something that's wrong with my relationship. And maybe this Mm -hmm. is something that is wrong with my partner or my metamor that is causing this instead of being like, actually, maybe there's something going on with me and my nervous system in this situation. So yeah. yeah. And I will (laughs) say like in that situation too, where assuming that everybody in the relationship wants to be non-monogamous right and I would say a really big huge source of conflict is that one person in an established couple wants to be non-monogamous and so there is it's not necessarily coercion in the sense that it's like directly trying to control the person right but there is sort of like some kind of convincing let's just say right of like you're having to tell your partner who would much rather be monogamous like yes let's try polyamory and I think under those conditions right we're also seeing a lot of like terms like poly under duress right like I had to give it a go and I don't actually want to and I know it's a really again like the frustration I have with a lot of the non-monogamy education online is that it erases so much of that nuance, right? Of like, there's not a clear, like you can see from both sides, right? You can see from the person who wants to be polyam's side of like trying to convince their partner to just try it. And you can see the partner's, the other person's side too, of like, they don't want to lose their relationship, even though they know they want to be monogamous, ideally. And so they end up in these really tough situations and am I right, Jay, that you've kind of experienced some of that of like trying to date somebody who didn't actually want to be non-monogamous or am I m- misremembering? No, not really. Um... Well, I think like what 
Jay's situation is, is actually weirdly, and nobody really talks about this, but it's actually mm. like weirdly kind of the reverse in the mm. sense that it's like when there's somebody who is established, like as polyamorous, who is now who is not in a monogamous relationship, who hasn't been in a monogamous relationship for some time, who currently has other partners, you know, and is starting to date someone. And that person is like, yes, I accept that this is the situation. And like, I want to be polyamorous too. Um, but then they're like, maybe I want to be less polyamorous than this, or maybe mm-hmm. the way that you are polyamorous is too much for me when that's how that person was when you got here, you know? And so it's interesting because it's like, in the in what you're describing, like I've heard people talk about this about like a polyamorous person, um, sort of like trying to encourage their monogamous partner to try polyamory. But I think that the opposite happens often as well, yes. where somebody who's already polyamorous is now being encouraged, or in some cases like outright coerced by their partner to be less polyamorous than they are because the mm-hmm. partner prefers either monogamy or a more hierarchical polyamorous structure. Or a polyamorous structure where, like, that partner can claim, like, primary or mm-hmm. a or a, po- a polyamorous structure where basically they just don't want their partner to be, like, dating that many people or sleeping with that many people or something like that. And so I think it's interesting because, you know, all relationships require a degree of compromise and a degree of, like, okay, what can we deal with, like, in terms of, like, what can we agree on here? And, like, there's mm-hmm. always a degree of compromise. And sometimes it's not possible because the the, the needs are too different, right? But I think in these two examples, um, it is so much easier for our largely, like, monogamous, like, larger culture to see the context of a polyamorous person trying to get their monogamous partner to try polyamory as problematic and not the other way around, you know? Um, And I think that this comes from like an underlying like sex negativity and um, monocentrism, monogamy centrism, if I do, (laughs) if I do dare to say so. (laughs) Thoughts, Jay? Um, Yeah, well, I mean, Clementine pretty much covered it. Yeah, like, I was never trying to make anyone be polyamorous, you know. I was been uh, poly since. I've been poly since forever. And um, I have a couple exes who, you know, started dating me when I had, like, three partners already. And then we're sort of like, you have too many partners. And it's like, well, that's kind of always how it's been, you know. Um, Yeah. yeah. Um, I'm curious about how you talk to people when you're doing your like peer support sessions about polyamory when they do sort of like come out with um the notion that maybe because they feel distressed that they are you know that they're being victimized in some way um and like do you encounter that often do you have to like talk people out of that or do do you just leave it alone i'm curious yeah and it really depends right i think this is where peer support is not therapy in a very Mm. clear way right like a lot of what i do is ask people like what do you want from this session right like what kind of support are you looking for are you looking for advice do you need some kind of like framework for how to have conversations with your partners about this um usually when there's situations like what you're describing jay i will invite the other person to come and have like a conversation the three of us together um I do like facilitate couples conversations and Uh in those situations I do very much like interview style so I'll be like okay like will you tell me what happened and then I give the other person the chance to give me exactly like their version of the same question Mm -hmm. and that way I'm able to sort of like 
pull apart like okay this Mm. is what we're agreeing on and this is what we're disagreeing on let's go ahead and find a way to like actually talk about the points that there seems to be misalignment um, and find ways where we're not continuing to find that pattern and I will say again I'm not a therapist. I don't specialize in trauma. I do not have any kind of certification around like domestic abuse. And when there are, and I would say it's like pretty rare cases where, again, like from my limited understanding, I'm like, okay, this does seem like it is like legitimate abuse. I refer people out, right? Like Uh 100% of the time. Because again, I don't have those qualifications. and I don't think that it is productive for me as a person to be doing this, right? What I say is I do like garden variety, non-monogamy conflict. Um, And so Mm. in those situations, it's a lot more of people feeling like they're yeah, like they've been under in situations that cause them a lot of distress and I give them a space to talk about it, you know, because I think a lot of times when people are able to say like, hey, I'm feeling really jealous or like this situation with my meta makes me feel incredibly uncomfortable and just having a non-judgmental space to be uh-huh. able to air that out and receive some compassion. I do a lot of just like commiserating with people it seems like they can move on from it a lot better, right? Um, and then they don't have to take to the internet and go yeah. and be like, you know, I need that support from someone else. Um, and yeah, I would say that a lot more of what I'm seeing recently is people who have been accused of doing X, Y, and Z by Mm. their partners. And there's a lot of shame. There's a lot of guilt, right? People are just like, am I the worst person in the world? And so in those situations, we're like, okay, well, like, let's take the complaint at face value, right? Let's assume that this is what happened. How would you want to behave next time, right? Like, let's have a conversation where we're able to bring your partner in and be like, well, how would we avoid this type of conflict in the future, if that's possible? If not, then we can also be like, all right, is this a situation where we can just move on and be like, there are mistakes that are going to happen, right? This is a relationship. It's not like people are behaving perfectly across the board and I don't expect that from the people I work with so it is really just about like sprinkling nuance into these um situations so that it we're not casting people as like the good guy the bad guy the victim the abuser because again like the vast 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 majority of people I talk to that's just simply not what's happening they're just hurting and I think you know those are different types of conversations does that make sense yeah, absolutely. It's interesting. It's just bringing something to mind uh, for mm-hmm. me. Like we, we did an episode about, in in part, about how um, the phenomenon of like canceling your ex um, mm. can be a type of domestic abuse, right? Right. Um, or it can be like a tool in like a a repertoire of abusive mm-hmm. actions um, because it's very effective at isolating someone. Um, you know, it you know can can just brutalize someone emotionally. Um, and can also cut them off from community, from even family, uh, and, you know, can help uh, um, get them out of employment even, you know, oh, and it yep. can be a kind of like vengeance as well, right? Like if something doesn't go well. Um, and it's interesting because like, 
you and I'm not I'm not like trying to take a dig at you at all I'm just like thinking Mm. about how this actually plays out right because you say that when you come across examples of abuse you refer people out but I imagine that it would be very hard to refer someone out like where do you refer them to if you determine that like they're being like blacklisted from their whole community by their Mm -hmm. ex or something like that Mm -hmm. which like honestly um in if you sort of like change the circumstances Uh and stuff like a lot of people would see that as like a very abusive like fucked up thing to do right Mm -hmm. um but like who are you going to refer them to like a you know a crisis center is going to be like what are you talking about yeah Yeah. good i like i just am so struck in in some of the polyamory cancellations that many of the accusations because there's different kinds of accusations that come out Mm -hmm. in terms of a polyamory cancellation right sometimes the accusations are about people's dysregulated behavior in conflict right but sometimes the accusations are literally about the polyamory like sometimes the accusation the reason that the person is being canceled if you actually read what the cancellation is what they're being accused of is polyamory they're being that's jay's cancellation (laughs) they're being accused of sleeping with multiple people, dating multiple Mm -hmm. people, having multiple relationships, and somebody has determined that they're doing too much of that, right? Right. And and as if there's some kind of gold standard for Mm -hmm. how many people you can date or sleep with, when in reality, these are things that each each person and each like relationship dynamic involved needs to decide, is this okay for me? Like, mm-hmm. do I want to be dating someone who's dating this many people? And if it's if it's not okay for me, that's fine. But that doesn't mean that the person dating that many people, that, that it's wrong or abusive for them to do so. If the other people that they're dating are fine with it, then the other people are fine with it, you know? Um, and one of the things that really strikes me in this is just like, you know, because I had an experience of domestic violence in my early 20s. Mm. And a classic like element of standard domestic abuse in like a heterosexual context anyway, but probably elsewhere as well, is slut shaming, right? Like Mm -hmm. my ex-partner, even though I was monogamous, was obsessed with my sexual history before him and constantly brought that up that I was such a slut, right? And so when I look at some of these polyamory cancellations, including Jay's, I'm like, honestly, man, if the genders were reversed here, Mm. you know, if if a man made like a website about a woman that was basically like this woman sleeps around she won't stop running mm-hmm. her pussy all around town or whatever i it's obviously abusive because you don't have the yep. right to control another adult's sexual behavior like it's not your business even if you're dating them they don't belong to you right and i feel like that's kind of like the basic premise of polyamory that person doesn't belong to you <laughs> um <laughs> So I don't know. And it's yeah. hard, right? Because again, we go back to that theory versus practice situation. Right. Yes. I think most people are like, in theory, sure, no one belongs to me. But then the second they're starting to date or sleep with other people, I would dare say, <laughs> based on my experience with these conversations, people, you know, like will justify the control that they're trying to exert totally. as a way of regulating their emotions. Yes, yes. Um, and you know, I what keeps on popping up that we haven't really addressed in this conversation Mm. is the how would I word this okay let me back up for a second you know in Mm -hmm. monogamous relationships like we have such a clear script of how relationships are supposed to evolve right non-monogamy it's not quite the same like it's not as clear cut Mm. um because people are trying to like you know pick and choose the kind of agreements that they want 
And so I think a lot of people entering this space are lost, are confused, and are scared that they're going to do it wrong. And so they're looking for some kind of gospel of like, if I just follow these rules, then I will have success. And it leads to people being put on these pedestals, right? These like polyam gurus who have all of the answers, who are able to sit on their high horse and dictate how everyone's relationships should look, which, you know, then we end up in these situations where there's like polyam communities that are led by one person who has all the answers and everybody has to behave exactly in that way. And if they don't, then they're opening themselves up for cancellation. And I think there is a lot of interesting nuance that pops out of this, right? Like we've seen the hierarchical polyam versus non-hierarchical polyam debate come out of this kind of hierarchical community structure for lack of a better word and it gets really messy right because again like if you're not in these super small insular communities you probably have no clue what the fuck I just said like that (laughs) sentence is just like word salad to I would say the vast majority of people but when you're in it and when you're looking for these answers it does feel so big and so real um yeah yeah, I I don't know where it reminds me of um it reminds me of BDSM world, honestly. It's like right. a kind of similar thing where there's like these kind of like parallel scenes a little bit mm-hmm. where there's like people who really like to go to like these meetups and they have like dungeons and like they, have, yes. they all have like tons of like latex and like whatever, you know? And then there's people who just like tie people to their beds when they meet them yep. on Grindr, you know? Um, and so those are the kind of like two types of like BDSM and and like polyamory is very much like that, you know? There's like a whole scene of like, basically like every every queer person in Montreal is polyamorous, you know? Basically, but yeah. n- not, a, not all of them we're going to like these meetups these munches these um you know and and they they wouldn't know like the polyamory gurus you know but they're but then there's this parallel scene of of polyamorous people who make it like a big part of their or like they're really invested in like a polyamorous community and they like to go to these meetups and and yeah there are these gurus it's like really funny thing too like sometimes they are very sort of like controlling of of other people and other times they're the ones getting like sort of brutally taken down yes. Um, mm-hmm. and yes. and often it's like that they basically they had too much sex you know um yeah. and and like you, you know sometimes sometimes it's you know there's other things thrown in like yeah they they may have been like quite controlling or like abusing their power or whatever and other times it's like literally just that like they were sort of popular in like some polyamory scene and like a lot of people wanted to sleep with them and they said yes because they're fucking polyamorous and like they like having sex you know and then it becomes like a big problem and we've seen like a bunch of cases like that where like the just the 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 intensity to which it can like those cancellations can um, reach is like really intense and again I mean part of it is just the people have so many exes but yeah 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 I mean one of the things that it that it made me think of what you were saying is um there's a parallel for me because another area that I do a lot of work in is bisexual women who want to date mm. women and struggle to do so. Right. And one of the main reasons that they struggle to do so is there is no script for them to follow. Like because they're used to heteronormativity where the the basically there's a basic script which is, you know, um the guy makes the first move and then you follow his lead if you're interested and then like whatever it goes from there and there's like sex even follows a particular trajectory everything is sort of laid out dating sex whatever it's pretty simple but if you are like a woman dating another woman 
there's nobody who's necessarily has any particular role and you have to figure that out as you go. And so like, what is, that's very liberating about queer relationships, but it's also scary because how do you know what you're doing and how do you Mm -hmm. know, like part of what scares bisexual women so much about this is the responsibility and risk inherent in initiating. And they are, they prefer to let men have that risk and responsibility because it's fucking scary. Right. And so I think a similar thing goes on in polyamory versus monogamy where there's very specific set goalposts. It's like what is called the relationship escalator. Um, And for those who aren't polyamorous and don't know that term, it basically means that like a relationship evolves on a certain timeline. You like meet, you go on a few dates, you start having sex, and then like you get serious, you become monogamous. You then, I guess, go down that road, are together for a long time. Maybe you have kids, you like, you live together, et cetera. And that's, that's the relationship escalator. It's all going towards more and more commitment. Whereas in polyamory, relationships can look any number of ways, you know, like mm-hmm. Jay and I have been together for six and a half years. We're like serious committed partners. We don't live together. And that's like super unheard of. In, it can happen, yeah. but it's way more unheard of in monogamy world, right? Um, and so in polyamory, you know, you can have serious, like one of my partners I've been dating for two years and like, we don't, we see each other like a couple times a month and that works for us, mm-hmm. but it's like, we're not super enmeshed with each other. Um, and that type of thing is really normal in polyamory for people to sort of like build their own relationship. But that means there is really no rules. There's nothing to sort of check your work against to be like, am I doing this right? It's basically mm-hmm. just like, oh, me and my partner are co-creating this and we're deciding what we want. And that is more risky because it means that you basically have to take responsibility for what you want and what you don't want, not based on rules, but based on just truly what you want and don't want. And so when you disappoint people, that's actually just you disappointed them, you know, Mm -hmm. and then you have to deal with the reality that that can hurt someone, but also it's still your right to have your boundaries and your preferences, even if it does disappoint someone. So I don't know. That's where that took me. Yeah. Yeah. And again, like, I think it is this situation, right? Where like, if you don't know, uh, most people are opening their relationship kind of blind, right? This is still kind of fringe practices for the most part. Like there's not a whole lot of mainstream representation of like actual non-monogamous relationships. Like none, yeah. None. And so you do go look for answers right yeah. inevitably you go look for something and I think the people who have put themselves out there to your point Jay like some of them have done a really good job some of them have risen a little bit too much and you know you have way further to fall I think of like Franklin Vo, who yeah wrote more than two right that was like yeah. the bible of non-monogamy for years and years and years and then the bunny ears he just wears bunny ears anyway oh i don't know anyways well i mean y'all have heard right like his fall from fame and again i don't i can't even tell you what the fuck he did what he's accused of because i'm i don't know right like none of us know i don't know this person um and it does create these situations where we're just like kind of rolling over people right like people are looking for someone to guide them and then they're taken down and then we need somebody new to guide us and then they're taken down and you just see this kind of like pattern of cancellations um that I don't really know where that leads us as a community except the fact that a lot of people are super stressed out about doing anything wrong in non-monogamy because again there's just like this constant turnover of 
folks yeah. and yeah I don't know it's just like really scary I think for a lot of folks to enter this world what about uh what about you are you uh oh yeah are you living in constant terror or have you kind of moved past that or like what's up with that with you you know here's the thing I am so tired of all of it right oh. like yeah. this is unfortunately my job and okay I say this, I'm lucky that this is my job, but this is, you know, sometimes it does feel like, unfortunately, it's my job. Yeah. Where, like, I am on social media. It does create these instances where, like, I'm just out in public. Again, I'm in Portland, so a lot of people are non-monogamous here. And then there's mm. that moment of, like, hey, I recognize you. I love your work, which is so sweet. And it takes me off guard every single oh, time because it's like uh -huh. I'm just an office worker you know what I'm saying like I am not I do not want to be a figurehead for non-monogamy right like Aww. I am a peer support person like I am here to help people one-on-one -on -one. and I think it does create these like very uh touchy moments where people are having a hard time they're disagreeing with what I'm saying because again like a lot of what I'm writing either doesn't apply to everyone how uh -huh. could it it's not yeah, yeah. me or it feels dated even to me right like my mm. understanding of how people practice relationships obviously changes and yeah. shit that I have said in the past I don't stand by anymore a lot of what I'm writing now I only kind of stand by because again like you can't cover all of the nuances of yeah. every single topic and every single yeah. situation and so to answer I guess like I just delete a lot of comments I block Love a that. lot of people I'm so fucking tired of being on social media yeah you know yeah. a lot and this is a completely different conversation but I do get to a point where I'm like okay so I'm creating all of this content it is work right to yeah. do this so that these like social media platforms can make money and I'm getting I'm not getting paid for any of this and I'm supposed to deal with the bullshit of like these kind of like constant pylons of people misinterpreting what I'm saying and then getting mad about it like I can't no like if I was getting paid maybe sure fine I would maybe have a little bit more bandwidth to interact and to defend myself but yeah. at this point I just don't like this is just oh, time and energy exhausting and I'm sure you feel the same way I know you oh, yeah. engage a lot more like in your comment section than I oh, do but I have but restricted just, comments like, so the only people cannot. who can comment are people who I follow um and and honestly they can only do that if they behave like respectfully and as soon as they yeah. start receiving non-respectfully then I just restrict them immediately because and I've told them I don't debate in my comment section I don't get into like long debates or it, I'm like if you disagree with me or you think I've missed something by all means means like please go write an article that expresses your mm -hmm. perspective make your own post that expresses your perspective like I'm not stopping that but like mm -hmm. my comment section is not like an open forum for people to just like debate me like that's just yeah I I, I feel the same way I don't have the fucking time for that at all yeah in your uh, frequently asked questions on your website you have like a really funny <laughs> one that's just like uh, why can't I yell at you on Instagram um <laughs> and you're just like yeah dude like I fucking can't also no one can yeah. right you 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 wrote about how you have like uh you have a master's in social psychology with like an emphasis on um social media usage is that right um yeah like that's yeah, what you wrote your thesis psychology. on. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, and yeah, in your frequently asked questions there, you're just like, actually, like no one can handle um the way that mm -hmm. social media is set up. It like fucking like 
just is like not it's not conducive to like anything human (laughs) (laughs) which I really appreciated yeah Yeah. and I guess it's kind of interesting because like you know I was telling you I've had these like weird peer calls recently and a lot of it is people being like I went on reddit you know r dash polyamory and people are fucking nuts like they're just yelling at people over absolutely nonsense my client was like telling me how they just like posted their field bio to get feedback and then people were like oh you're being abused because you know you want to be a third for couples and so you are you know I mean that classic shit right like people being like you poor scared bisexual who doesn't have any agency and sure again like I deal with a lot of situations where like people who are thirds for couples are having a terrible time and that does happen it doesn't mean that people don't have the agency to decide that that is something they wanted and people might like that exactly you know yeah Yeah. not having a terrible time but like they might be (laughs) way more comfortable with like yeah certain dynamics than others Mm -hmm. yeah 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 I really want to pull out the word agency because I think it's so important and I think that like the the answer here is not to find the correct type of relationship style it's not about monogamy polyamory relationship anarchy non-hierarchical hierarchical open relationship like in fact any type of relationship structure can work for the people involved if it works for the people involved if if for them that satisfies them and they are happy with it um so instead of trying to fit this like one size like find this one size fits all kind of model you know, which I think we're all kind of always arguing this person is doing this too much or not enough or this is bad. Like, in fact, we need to be encouraging people to develop their personal agency and their responsibility for actually making choices that work Mm -hmm. for them. And I think one of the things that is tricky with the polyamory thing is that it's like what you were saying about the intellectual sort of like theory model of polyamory versus the emotional reaction. And I think that people can sometimes have a very hard time discerning if something is or is not a yes for them, because on the intellectual level, it's a yes. And then on the emotional Mm -hmm. level, it's all crazy. And so the truth is, like you were saying, for a lot of people, that can come into alignment after a bunch of work. If they're going to therapy, if they're doing peer support, if they're doing self-reflection and they really do feel that they want this, they may be able to resolve the emotional stuff enough that they come into alignment with the how they feel intellectually and they're actually able to enjoy it. And like, that was my journey. That's the journey mm-hmm. of a lot of the people that I work with and it's totally fine. But like part of the stuff that I, when I teach the trauma-informed polyamory, like what I want to emphasize to people is that if I'm like, if you come to a place where you're like, actually, this isn't worth it for me, and polyamory isn't important enough for me to continue to do this level of emotional work, that's fine. But what's hard about it is that you may then be grieving because you may have to leave the relationship that you're in because your partner's polyamorous and may not want to change, you know? And I think that if people can take responsibility for what they want and what they don't want, it's difficult because it does mean a lot of grief. Because every time we make a choice, we, we say no to something else and we lose something else, right? And so actually deciding, wow, okay, like, whatever, I started dating this person who's, like, very, very poly and, like, um is really, really slutty and I thought that that was really, like, hot and cool, but now I'm having a mental breakdown and I don't think I can handle it. Just being like, wow, this isn't actually working for me and I want to leave the relationship is like so much more responsible than canceling your ex on the internet. Also, same thing. It's like, we tried to open it up. I wanted to make that work. But then after like a while of doing that, I realized it doesn't work for me. So either we have to go back to monogamy or unfortunately I have to leave. 
which which leads us to like another thing that we thought about asking you about like which is just this idea that like uh that your your partner is obliged to meet all of your emotional needs you know and that mm-hmm. like there's in in that kind of like pop relationship psychology that i was talking about there's this understanding that like uh your partner not meeting your emotional needs is itself abusive and like clementine has you know made posts about this and stuff like just being like yeah like it's that it's not abusive, you know, you just need to sort of like realize that that relationship isn't working for you or like try to come to some sort of compromise, right? Um, and people have gotten like really, really, really bent out of shape about that. Like yeah. a lot of people strongly believe that like if their emotional needs are not being met by another, you know, adult um, in a consensual relationship, then they are being like victimized by that person. And mm-hmm. it's it's really interesting. Like where does that even like come from? Where does that perspective come from? Yeah. I guess like part of it is a kind of like there's there's probably a lot of different roots but i'm just thinking about it kind of out loud but i think part of it might be a holdover from sort of like religious monogamy shit you know where like your your partner the only kind of like partner that existed was like a spouse you know and like a spouse not meeting your emotional needs um might be sort of like grounds for um you know a, a great deal of uh of of distress because there's no other options right like you're you're not allowed to get divorced or whatever um so i don't know it might might come down to that and then i think also just people really like to um deal with distress by searching out like ways to control um the situation or other people you know and i think that trying to control other people is like a common uh method that people use when they're feeling fucked up about something but yeah, do you have thoughts about that, Sam? Does that come yeah. up for you, like this thing about? Because I feel like that's a big thing in polyamory for people to be like, "My partner isn't meeting my needs." Yeah, and it's interesting, right? Because there's, again, I hear so many like simplified little statements, right? Yes. We hear the same shit kind of over and over again. And one of the things that comes from this like non-monogamy theory is like your partner's don't have to meet all of your needs right Right. like they say this and again as theory and then in practice people get really like you said jay bent out of shape when that doesn't happen and i'm very much that person who has told partners in the past like hey i do not want to be your emotional support animal like i cannot do that the work i do already takes like the majority of the bandwidth i have to like process emotions please like there's a therapist that's available for you there's other people that's available for you and i've had relationships and for that reason right and again like it's fine if people do need that And it doesn't mean that I need to necessarily provide that. The beauty to me of non-monogamy is that you can have multiple partners. You can have partners where the relationship is a little bit more emotionally shallow. And you can have partners where you are getting those needs met. And as long as you understand that, great, right? I do think that, like you said, when people are experiencing a lot of jealousy, and they're coming to the partner and being like, hey, this situation is really difficult for me. And their partner's like, I do not have the space, the time, or the energy to process the situation with you for the, you know, X amount of time yes. this week, this month, yes. this day. People get really upset, right? They're like, well, you're the cause of my jealousy. So it is your problem. You yes. have to deal with this. And I don't like that you're dismissing me because I'm, I'm of your actions, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think and that's hard, right? Yeah, go it's ahead. It's hard. And I think that like, 
where this comes from, and it's like so important to keep emphasizing and underlying is the personal responsibility because it is easy to blame mm-hmm. the partner and say, it's your other relationship. It's what you're doing that's causing my distress. Mm-hmm. What I would like to do the reframe is like, actually what's causing your distress is that you have decided to be polyamorous. Mm-hmm. And this is part of what it means to be polyamorous and you're having distress that's related to it. And like, look, I'm not saying that the partner has no role in helping to soothe that. That's literally like a lot of what love that emergency is about. Like Mm -hmm. relationships are, you know, it's reciprocal. It takes two. two. The partner does have a responsibility to show up to that, to try to help soothe you, to try to, but to a point. Right. And like, Mm -hmm. What that what that person's capacity to do that work, like the level that they have is going to vary person to person. It's going to vary context to context. It's going to vary based on how many other partners they have, what their job is, how much energy they have, what's going on in their life, right? And so they may not have the level of um, availability for the amount of processing that you might want. And also at a certain point, you might be outsourcing work to your partner that is actually yours to do on your own and with a therapist, you know? And I think that that's something people really need to take responsibility because I understand if you have the mindset where you believe that your partner being with someone else is something that they're doing to you. Mm -hmm. I understand why you'd feel victimized by that. But the reality is, is that, yeah, yeah, but your partner is not doing that to you. Mm -mm. They're having a relationship with someone else. And actually it has very little to do with you at all. And I think that that is what is like, that can open up so much grief, so much pain um, because we all have this hangover from monogamy. Like, what does that mean? And like, there's a lot of work that can be done there. And I have a lot of compassion for the work that that takes to kind of figure that out. Um, But your partner's not doing that to you. And one other thing I just wanted to say, Jay, in relationship to what you were saying about, like, where does this come from? You know, like this this idea that the partner is responsible for meeting all your needs. Mm-hmm. My opinion is this is people who have not done the, the, the maturing that needs to happen from moving out of childhood into adulthood. And, mm-hmm. I, and that might be a controversial thing to say. But when you are a child, when you are a child, it is necessary for your attachment mm-hmm. figures, which are your caregivers and your parents to meet all your attachment needs. It's a fundamental human experience that when we are children, especially when we're babies, but when we're kids, we absolutely fundamentally require our attachment figures to meet all of our needs. Otherwise Mm -hmm. we'll die or we will be in extreme distress and pain. That is what a baby needs. And so there's a, that is something that we can all relate to because we were all babies, right? So we've all had that experience of profound like helpless attachment in which we were completely reliant upon our attachment figure to meet all of our needs. And then the point of growing up and the experience of growing up is that we slowly learn to become more independent, to Mm self-soothe and to self-regulate more often, to begin to have more attachment relationships instead of just our parents. And then eventually, hopefully to be securely attached so that we can self-regulate and we can get co-regulation from multiple people. But most people these days unfortunately did not have the experience growing Mm. up that allowed them to develop that kind of secure attachment. And also people are trapped in an extremely alienated social environment. Exactly. Where like the kinds of like opportunities for co-regulation that you're talking about might not even exist for a lot of people who are, you know, really like a a distressingly high number of people report having no close friends. No friends. They don't know their neighbors. Exactly. Um, Yeah. Yeah. And it's funny because like I use, like I said, a lot of frameworks for processing these situations with people, right? To give them 
some words that they can use. And one of them is expectations. I talk about this a lot, Mm. right? Like you can state what your expectation is of a partner, but that's a request. That's not a a demand, right? Like you cannot force somebody else to meet those expectations. You can say, hey, I expect that when I'm activated that you sit with me and hold my hands and do deep breathing. Fine, right? Like I'm not here to tell you what your expectations should be of of a partner. If that works for you, great. And if that works for your partner, fabulous. When your partner says, no, I cannot do that for you. I think that's when we get into these issues of like, some people might try to control or force their partner or, you know, cast them as being uncaring, whatever it is. When really, I think that's that other person understanding what their capacity is and communicating that in a very like clear and concise way Uh um what I get shit on a lot (laughs) is I tell people you know like in those situations when your partner cannot co-regulate with you yeah go do something else like it is your job to get fucking hobbies to get friends to get people around you who you can soothe with that is not just your partner right and I think people are like oh but I shouldn't distract myself from your jealousy no babe like you have to distract yourself from your jealousy you can't just fixate (sighs) on it it's not gonna go away just especially like yeah yeah especially if you're anxious preoccupied it's right in the name man you're preoccupied preoccupied. like And, like, it's not going to help to just stay in the preoccupation endlessly, you know? Like, you do need to get out of it. And believe me, I have a very anxious, preoccupied streak, and the anxious, preoccupied part of me is, like, fuck you for saying that, Clementine, you Mm -hmm. know? Because the anxious, preoccupied part part of me wants to be preoccupied, you know? Mm -hmm. But that's something that we work on in therapy. Yeah. So There's, like, something that's kind of related, unrelated, that's just, like, popping out to me again. Um, I want to pull on this thread of, like, the theory versus the practice thing Mm -hmm. that you've been that you've been talking about and just compare it to something that we've talked about on the pod before. And I mean, whatever, a lot of people have pointed this out, I think, but in kind of like, I don't know what you want to call it, progressive queer social justice kind of world, there is a kind of extremely ambivalent uh, relationship towards sexuality. And by ambivalent, mm-hmm. I mean, going both ways simultaneously, you know, uh-huh. where I think that there's like a strong valorization of sex and sexuality while Mm -hmm. simultaneously a somewhat puritanical attitude towards it. And how this plays out is that I think like in general, like you are supposed to be on social media, sexy, taking slutty pictures, um, maybe if you have enough followers selling sex toys, um, you know, like this kind of um, image is like very important uh, mm-hmm. for a lot of queer people. And it doesn't hurt to have like multiple like hot partners with lots of tattoos and like whatever. Right. right? So you know exactly what I'm talking about. Right. Um, and sort of like the uh, the um, the taking up of like BDSM aesthetics is also like a big part yeah. of it um, and sort of a casual literacy with like BDSM terms and Mm -hmm, and so mm -hmm. on, you know, being like, I'm a bottom and like, whatever. Um, And at the same time as all of this, um, there is like a huge amount of sex negativity that, that bubbles below the surface, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, And I think like it, we often see it in cancel culture. We often see it, especially Mm -hmm. in cancel culture around polyamory, as we've just Mm -hmm. been mentioning um, that like people's, enjoyment of sex and sexuality can actually be reframed very easily as a sort of like predatory and Mm. um, 
you know, dangerous and disturbing yeah. kind of elements of their personality, as can um, a preference for non-monogamy, uh, a preference for certain relationship styles that might be like more like detached or whatever. Um, and it's just uh, very, very interesting because those two things are existing simultaneously, simultaneously. and in a lot of tension, actually. And mm -hmm. I think that often when that tension breaks is when we see these uh, these cancellation spectacles that that relate to um, sex and sexuality. Do you have, I don't know, thoughts about that? Yeah, I do. I mean, it's complicated, right? Because again, like we're assuming that people fit the stereotypes right like as a lesbian i mean Clem, this is obviously intersex with by by girl and by girl anxiety yeah. about hookups right um as a yeah as a lesbian it's like you're not supposed to just want casual sex which is how i was practicing non-monogamy for years right like i had a live-in dude partner platonically like a basically a glorified roommate you know what I'm saying but um and then just really liked having hookups and there was like a lot of that pressure of like I'm not just a hookup I'm not just here for fun like no 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 like it has to follow this like stereotypical lesbian u-hauling yes. like we fall in love with each other ba 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 and it's hard, right? Because then it's like, well, where does that leave us? Like, if all of us have to exemplify this kind of, like, stereotype based on our identity, it doesn't give us, back to that word, agency to actually choose the kind of relationships or experiences that we want. Um, and I will say this might be more of a Portland thing. I don't want to... <laughs> no, I'm going to make this statement. I'm going to make this statement. Exactly what you're saying, right, Jay, of like the glorification of sexuality with the prudishness. Yeah. Like we see that here in this city so specifically of people want to go to, you know, sex parties, but then there's always problems with the venues, with the organizers. They're not creating safe spaces yeah. enough, mm -hmm. you know, and it has to be kind of like added in this like uber safe uber consent forward thing and again i'm just like struggling to fully word this because uh -huh. part of my job is writing exactly these types of articles that are like literally i have one coming out this week that's like what is emotional safety in sexual relationships right and we're framing this as if there is just one answer, yes. right? That you have to do a checklist of things that's going to create safety. And then there's going to be no sexual violence. There's not going to be any misunderstanding. There's not going to be any situations where people are having consensual experiences that they regret. Right. Mm -hmm. And that's just not the case. And so it leaves us in this, it leaves me as a sex educator as like a really fucked up place of being like, I do believe that consent practices need to be at the forefront of sex sexuality and how do you do that in a way that's not skewing back into such a puritanical way that yes. people feel so inhibited by what they're allowed to do and especially by identity right <laughs> like that there's an expectation of how men should behave there's an yes. expectation of how women should behave there's an expectation of how bisexual women have to be in relation with one another it just creates so many again like boxes and 
I guess, like, how do you say, like, goals that people have to meet that Mm. just, I think, are not realistic with how humans actually interact with one another. I've been doing a bunch of writing on sex recently that's kind of talking Mm -hmm. about this. And one of the um, things that I think is missing from most sex education, most discussions around, like, trying to create safer spaces Mm -hmm. around sexuality is that sexuality actually has inherent risk inside of it that cannot and should not be removed. And Mm -hmm. that is, I don't know if you know Esther Perel's work, but Esther Perel Mm -hmm. is like, she wrote Meeting in Captivity. She's incredibly hot and incredibly cool. But anyway, uh, (laughs) she writes about how like the death of the erotic is when we be, when we get to the point where we think that we basically know our partner completely, there's no mystery there anymore. Right. And the erotic stays alive in the unknown, in the fact that it is not a hundred percent emotionally safe in quotation marks, in the sense that like the, the erotic thrives in the fact that your partner, this other person, is an entire complete person who can never be fully known by you. Mm-hmm. And you yourself also are. And so that's very hot. We love that. But then also that creates this inherent risk where there's always the possibility of misunderstanding because you mm-hmm. don't live inside each other's heads. You can't read each other's minds. And so even with the best consent practices, with full attunement, with like a really good forward, like really like vigorous consent practice where you're really trying your utmost to understand, to read your partner's body language, to listen, to give them opportunities to say no. Now, even in that case, there can still be misunderstandings where something does not land properly and one person thought something was understood that was not understood Mm -hmm. and something unwanted happens. And so, like, there is no way to get rid of that from sex. And, like, we're actually going to do an episode on this soon um, because I've been writing a lot about this topic. But it's like, not only can we not get rid of it. But our vigorous attempts to get rid of it make sex not hot anymore. Um, Mm -hmm. It makes sex contractual and it makes sex this very like, please sign here that this is a consensual experience in a way that like is not fucking erotic to people. And one of the big things that happens with bisexual women, okay, is that bisexual women don't have sex like that with men because men are following the heteronormative script. Men are just out here making moves, you know, and so you know, sometimes that goes quite badly and sometimes those men end up getting canceled, but also sometimes it goes quite well and it's very hot for the woman. And then when she's dating other women, she's in this queer culture where she's expected to not only like, you know, initiate, which she finds very stressful and she doesn't know how to do, but Mm. also she's expected to initiate in this way that is very contractual in which like we're trying to get rid of all risk, but we're obsessed Mm -hmm. with risk at the same time. And so that's not hot. And being like, you know, can I please touch your arm? How are we feeling? Let's process 10,000 times is not actually like turning her on. And so she goes back to, she turns women off on our Tinder and goes back to dudes. That's the story. (laughs) No, I mean, it's true. I have dated a lot of bisexual women and feel that tension, right? Yes. Also, I should say I was a formerly identified bisexual. Love that. No, I'm (laughs) you know the identity thing just drives me up the walls it's fine (laughs) um yeah yeah no I really do see that and I okay bringing this back to polyamory right Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. there's the difficulty of couples who have agreements of like you're only allowed to blank right you're only allowed to make out with somebody else you're only allowed to you know get to a certain point or some of them have like very contractual acts written out and 
it's just so complicated. Like, I, the only thing I keep bringing back up <laughs> is it's so complicated because you can see it from the couple's side, right? Like, you can understand why an established relationship would want to proceed that way. You understand that need for security. And it's also so antithetical to having an open relationship, right? Yeah. Like, does it actually make sense? And so sometimes, like we say, we're like in these situations where how do you communicate as a non-monogamous person? Hey, I have an agreement with my existing partner that I'm only allowed to do this with you. And also, by the way, I'm going to retell every single sexual act that we did together to my existing partner, whether you like it or not, because that's part of our agreements, you right. know, and I think it just like leads people to end up in these situations, these non-monogamous situations where everyone doesn't feel super settled about what's going on, right? The sex, like you said, doesn't actually feel autonomous. It doesn't feel hot. It doesn't feel fun. It just feels obligatory, contractual, and scary. Hey. I mean, they like there's like a there's like a stereotype about polyamorous people that they really like board games. Oh my god! Um, but it's like they're trying to turn sex into a board game where there's like a list <laughs> mm-hmm. of rules and then like yes. everyone has their turn and like it's just you know it's very sort of like robotic and uh, yeah I don't yeah. know it's an issue. It's- <laughs> yeah, and like you know just to like claim my own personal agency and responsibility, I'm like if somebody's like that, I will not date them. If somebody mm-hmm. is going to be like, hey, I have a list of rules with my partner about like, you know, the fact that I am not allowed to like develop feelings for you or like I yep. can't do certain sex acts with you, that's going to be a hard no for me. And so, you know, there's And a- it's not to say that that's wrong of them. No, I think it's annoying, but it's like that's mm-hmm. that's fine. I can think that and they can continue on with their life and I'm not going to cancel mm-hmm. them. Hopefully they're not going to cancel me, but maybe they will. And like it'll probably be fine, you know? Um and like, you know, there's certain things that I can be okay with. Like I do date people who have like a primary like structure where they have a primary mm-hmm. partner and like I can be respectful of that and there's like certain things that I can um personally accept. But again, it's not about being like which type of relationships structures are better or worse. It's just about being like what works for me and what doesn't and like taking responsibility right. for that, you know? Yeah. Um yeah, I and kinda... it's interesting, like, in the peer role, right, I'm always mm-hmm. saying I'm here to meet people where they're at, right, mm-hmm. to tell people who are just, just opening their relationship, hey, babe, like, you cannot have all of these board game rules, like, you're setting yourself up for yeah. failure, they're not ready to hear that, right? It's not my place to tell them that. Again, like for some people, that type of non-monogamy works and they're going to meet other people who are aligned with them in that way. And so a lot of what I do is just like talk about the iterative process of making agreements, right? Like you can start Mm -hmm. off with a lot of rigidity in your relationship. You can start off by, you know, covering your ass and all of your insecurities so that you feel safe enough to take these steps. But understand that like there will need to be progression in this like you cannot you know sustain non-monogamy in a way that feels so constrictive and controlled of you everything that you do your partner like it's just not going to give you enough freedom or trust really to get to a place where you're actually enjoying this yeah 
And I think people who aren't willing to then open up their agreements to be like, okay, you know, the agreements you can have around sex are like, we're going to practice safer sex. We're going to get tested. We're going to use barriers. Like these are things that I think are functional agreements Mm -hmm. for everyone in a polycule to have. Mm -hmm. But when we're getting it down to nitpicky, like you're only allowed to give a blowjob that lasts for five minutes with somebody that you only see twice. And if not, you know, then you're violating my consent and you're causing me harm like yeah that's a whole other and also though where this can go as well is it's like sure it might be reasonable to be like yeah like you know concrete physical actions a person can do or not do but like when people start to make boundaries that are about feelings I'm just Mm. like I don't know how you're gonna do that because if if the rule is if the agreement is you can't fall in love I'm like I'm not sure if you know how love works but it's like if a person if you're if you're seeing someone and you're having sex with them And you are kissing them and you're touching them Mm -hmm. and you're holding each other's hands and you're Mm -hmm. lying on the bed together over time. You're sharing, you're talking, you might fall in love. Like even if you weren't planning to, or you weren't intending to, like intimacy can lead to love. So just the idea that if a person were to fall in love when they said they weren't going to, that that's like a breach of consent or it's a violation Mm -hmm. of an agreement. I'm kind of like, you kind of are asking for something that it isn't really possible to ask for, unfortunately. Like I can understand why you might ask for that. But people can't necessarily control if they're going to fall in love or not. They can control what they do about that, but they can't control if they feel it. So, yeah. yeah. And we didn't Um, talk about the veto power thing, which I guess, again, like, I don't need, we don't need to go on forever. But I do think that that veto mm -hmm. is like the micro experience of cancellations within the relationship, right? Of like saying, hey you know, you fell in love with your partner, that breaches our agreement, you have violated my consent. And therefore, I get to tell you that you're never allowed to speak to your partner again, like your other person again, right? It happens all the time. It does. And it's hard, right? Like, what do you tell people who are in a space where again, like they're hurting, right? This is, this is where I think all of this weird behavior comes from. For sure. Yeah. And I think and we can have compassion for it. Like, I think it's, I'm totally. glad that you said that they're hurting because people are hurting. And I think cancel culture encourages people to respond to their pain with like control and with like, mm-hmm. like lashing out instead yeah. of like with grief and actually like whatever, everybody knows that I'm a Swifty, but there's a Taylor Swift song that is like called happiness. And it's honestly like the breakup song that I wish that all cancelers would listen to because she's like, like there is happiness because of you. There will be happiness after you. Both mm. of these things can be true. There is happiness. Mm-hmm. And like, it's just this song where, you know, like she says, I can't make it go away by making you a villain, you know? Mm-hmm. And that's what we're constantly doing. We're trying to push away our grief and our pain and our complicated feelings by turning our ex, our partner, our metamor, whoever into this evil villain. When in fact, like what's happening in a lot of these situations is just that like, we're hurting, we're feeling grief, we're feeling pain, we're feeling overwhelmed, we're feeling confusion. And we don't know what's happening. There's uncertainty and we don't know what that means. And instead of like actually trying to build security if possible within this situation or deciding that it just doesn't work for us and we need to leave and grieve, we just try to cast blame because it's, because honestly, casting blame brings us into our fight nervous system response which is so much more regulating it feels so much better so mm-hmm. yeah people yeah. should write uh you're not allowed to cancel me into their board game rules <laughs> i love yeah, see how it. that works see how I that works that. cover a lot I of mean, bases yeah honestly <laughs> at this point <laughs> they're 
uh, what do we say? Agreement V3, right? Just yeah. Ended off no canceling. PDF. Please, no canceling. <laughs> yeah. No yeah. Canceling. But yeah, yeah, I feel like we've pretty much, we've been going on for a while. We've pretty much covered everything. I, know, I just wanted to. so much about this. Yeah, we could probably go on forever. I wanted to bring up this one story just like, because I feel like it's so kind of like emblematic of this. But like I, I once had these two roommates and they were friends and then they started dating and then they were dating and then they decided to become poly and immediately had like tons of conflict and like you know i was like a polyamorous educator so they were both talking to me privately and i was kind of supporting them both being like okay like let's talk through this and then they had really major conflict and it was just you know normative conflict about polyamory you know classic stuff that you and i both know so well and both of them came to me privately and were like do you think i'm being abused you know Mm -hmm. and part of what i see there you know and it's the one thing that i think we didn't touch on in this um in this conversation is that under cancel culture, it's like sometimes the way that it works out is whoever strikes first wins. Mm-hmm. And so when we know that so many people are getting canceled in this context where we are recasting conflict as abuse, not only might you want to cancel your partner, but you might also be super fucking scared that your can- your partner is going to cancel you, right? Yep. Because both of you were acting messy because you were in conflict. So both of you were acting kind of messy and you totally understand how your partner could recast what you were doing. Mm-hmm as abuse and destroy your Mm -hmm. life so you might be motivated to then be like okay maybe I should say they're abusing me and I don't think people are thinking about it that like maliciously and intentionally but in their mind they kind of know like there's like an anxious nervous system feeling of like one of us is going to go down so like if I say it first then I get to be the one who's the victim and I get to be the one who says like that person can't come to the zine fair. I don't feel safe, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, like I think that that was just a piece that didn't get brought up in the conversation that I wanted to throw in there. I, we were talking about this this morning and I was like, it reminds me of the cold war. Cause it's like mutually assured destruction, but like both yeah. sides are trying to work on like improving their first strike capacity so that they can yeah. like wipe out the other side before getting nuked themselves. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, for me, the answer is always like going back to that discipline, right? You have to understand that time will give you clarity and you're not going to have it in the moment, right? Like, even if it is abusive, all you can do in that situation is like, you know, end that relationship and take enough space to be able to process it with a therapist, process it with somebody who actually has the tools to help you get through that. At no point is just like lashing out or even like spilling all of this publicly going to be an appropriate remedy. And I just like, I think it's hard because again, we're talking to people who aren't in a headspace to necessarily understand that in the moment right like that the heat right I always use the word spicy right it's so spicy all you want to do is get it away from you those emotions um and yeah I really really do believe that there's a saying in there's a saying in AA that is like a classic one that is just Mm. like nothing pays off more than restraint of pen and tongue Mm. um Mm -hmm. and to this we could add keyboard um, mm-hmm. and it's like really just true. It's like when you're super triggered, when you're upset, yep. just fucking take some space, take some time, yeah. like let it cool off. You yep. know, if you're not sure if you were abused or not, and that can be a genuine experience. Like I think very often, like we're talking about mm. this flippantly, but for people with prior trauma, that can be a genuine experience where you genuinely Absolutely. don't know. And like, I had that yep. experience. 
you know, take some time to like talk it through, not with people who are just going to egg you on and like uncritically Mm -hmm. validate everything you're saying, but people who are actually going to talk through it with you and like, listen to what happened, listen to your emotions, listen to the, Mm -hmm. the behaviors. And hopefully a trusted therapist can do that with you so that you don't just like, you know, make false accusations by accident. Um, but yeah, no matter what the circumstance, like cooling off, restraint of pen and tongue and keyboard, chill for a bit, you know, get some support. And then, you know, you may find that you don't have the need to put anyone on blast after that. Yeah. Yeah, because it's not to say that abuse doesn't happen, right? And I think that's what yeah, is really difficult in these conversations about cancel culture, about all of this is like, it often gets framed as, okay, then that means you don't believe that there's victims. No, of course not. Like, yeah. absolutely not. And absolutely, people who have been victimized do need to have help. It's just like, is cancel culture the appropriate method of handling this i don't think so i really do not um yeah and i guess that's kind of that (laughs) just like letting people one last point i think we undermine like someone might be abusive in one relationship it doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to continue doing that in other relationships and i think that's one Mm. of the difficulties that I've been having to struggle with recently right like there are sometimes partnerships that just bring out the absolute fucking worst in people because of the combination of personality and it's not to say that you don't need to do personal work in between that and like learn better ways of coping but I will say that I think we downplay people's ability to change and that's one of the like major issues that I have with these conversations is like yeah I think the shittiest relationships I've been in has been like you know both of us activating the worst part of each other I don't think that makes those people incapable of having like really healthy relationships with people who are not me (laughs) totally totally Totally. I mean I think like one of the behaviors of mine that are that is like most problematic in relationships is that I can often get very, very avoidant, right? And mm. defensive too. Yep. Um, but like that that tendency of mine, um, it it plays out in very different ways with with different people, you know. Yeah. And like it's it's absolutely something that is my job to work on. It's my job to notice it when it's happening and try to find tools and blah 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 blah. Been in therapy for lots of years for it, you know. Um, but that being said, it's like also totally the case, as you were saying that like, um, many of the people who felt most hurt by it are also people who have most activated it in me, you know what I mean? And like, it's just the way that relationships work. Like sometimes like people, people can sort of like spark things in each other that, that can, you know, clash a lot. Mm -hmm. Um, yes, that's a really good point. Um, okay, well, I think we should probably leave it there. Yeah, um, of course. Sam, do you have, like, um, just for listeners who are interested in hearing more about what you do, your work, can you just share, like, where they can find you, how they can support you, all that kind of stuff? Yeah, so it's Shrimp Teeth on Instagram, shrimpteeth.com, my website, and I'm less on the internet these days, Love so that. I guess you just have to come 
fucking to my house. No, don't do that. that I don't like that. <laughs> I take it back. Don't show up at my house. <laughs> Go to Portland. Yeah, we'll we'll share some links in the show notes for people to check out your work. But yeah, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you. Again, both. thank you, thank you for your courage in in this. Like both now, like you know, instigating this conversation, and also years ago being one of the first people to just come out and like write that article. Yeah, respect for being a real one right yeah. from the beginning, man. Yeah, super brave, and we really appreciate that. Yeah. Some of the best people are canceled people, and I don't know what to say about that. That's it. Um, <laughs> all right. Well, uh, thank you for having me, and yeah, we'll talk yeah. next time. Thanks, Sam. <laughs>